Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ike Nicholson, and I'm the senior pastor here, and I'm uh, honored to be able to uh, come to you this morning. Uh, this, uh, this Sunday is uh, Palm Sunday, and uh, we're going to be looking specifically at a passage in Scripture that is probably uh, not as well known in the world as it is in the church world, the language that you all have, uh, the stories that you all know in the Bible. This is probably something that a lot of folks uh, outside of the church don't know about, and it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, for you uh, as you are talking with your neighbors and your friends and your family members and trying to figure out how to invite them to Easter Sunday services uh, next Sunday and uh, uh, to, to be in conversation with folks and to let folks know the importance of not only Easter, but also all the things that we're doing here this coming week during Holy Week. This is really strange to the world, and I know it seems odd for us because we have been so much a part of this uh, all of our lives. I know that I, being raised in the church, Palm Sunday was just like Pastor Drew said, that, that bridge, that transition uh, from the season of Lent, this time of prayerful reflection, uh, a moment of celebration on Palm Sunday. By the end of the service, I felt like a snail. Uh, because we were headed into Holy Week, and then uh, Maundy Thursday with the institution of the Lord's Supper, Good Friday, the remembrance of the crucifixion. Uh, just the weight, uh, but the power uh, of those services and of those events leading to Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is, uh, is the day that the church sort of breaks from the intense uh, reflection of Lent to think about the celebratory tone uh, that would have been a part of the crowds as Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. He's only got a few more days of his life. The next, as a matter of fact, if you were to read the Gospel of John, uh, roughly two-thirds of the Gospel of John deal solely with the last week of Jesus' life. There's a lot of stuff that's packed in uh, to these next couple of days, and significant moments in Jesus' ministry uh, occur in those last few moments, uh, those last few days. Throughout the season, we've been asking you this question. Uh, what is God inviting me to lay down in order to be made whole? What is God inviting me to lay down in order to be made whole? We're not going to ask that question anymore after today. I pray that you have wrestled with that. And uh, I, I'm flirting with the idea of sharing with you uh, what we were hoping that you might consider, or what I was hoping that you might consider, but I don't want to minimize what the Spirit has been teaching you and speaking to you over these last almost 40 days. And some of the things that we've talked about is laying down our, not just chocolate and coffee, we don't especially coffee, because we just don't want the kind of problems that that entails, <laughs> but as the pastors have coffee over there, is, is looking at whether or not we can lay down things like pride, uh, self-sufficiency, that is, is that we can earn our own way into the presence of God, that somehow we earn God's love. The question I hope has pierced your heart and you have considered what it might be like to lay down your life for the sake of God's glory in every aspect that that might mean. Now, I'm not suggesting that 
you know, we all go sell all we have and go to Eastern Africa and risk uh, martyrdom in order to preach the gospel, although the Lord might be calling some of you to do that. But what would it look like to lay your life down for the sake of the gospel in your family? What would it look like to lay your life down at your place of work? What would it like, look like to lay your life down in the presence of your friends? What would it look like to lay your life down in the presence of your neighbors? As we begin this, uh, and before we go to the text, I want to share with you something that I read recently. It said this, that the average Christian in the United States has almost the same things in common with their non-Christian neighbors in the United States. They have the same, roughly the same lifestyle, roughly the same rate of divorce, roughly the same rate of problems with their children, roughly the same changes in jobs. And that's something I think that is important for all of us to think about is I, as a believer, is there any difference between me as a believer and the person who's my neighbor who's a non-believer? Our kids go to the same schools. We shop at the same grocery stores. We look forward to getting the same cars or the same kinds of houses. Our goals in life may be roughly the same. There's an organization called Link to Lead, Link to Lead is a demographic company that every Christian church in the United States is automatically a member of because they're a part of the Christian church. And what Link to Lead does is Link to Lead uses United States census information and demographic information, and they try to give to churches uh, the, um, uh, uh, the demographic information they need to be more effective at sharing the gospel in their community. And there's lots of different choices that folks can pick. On one of those particular questions, there is a question that, what is folks in your community looking for? And there's about four or five choices. Some of them are uh, family stability. Uh, One of those is spiritual growth. One of those is Bible knowledge. Uh, There's a couple of more. One of them is recreation. And the reason that... uh, Uh, demographic survey is so important because it tells us what your neighbors are looking for. What is the number one issue in their life? And you can imagine that if you lived in the the, uh, downtown Chicago or downtown New York City, that the issues that surround those folks would be quite different than the issues perhaps in in some small town in mid-America. In this demographic area, Littleton, Centennial, Highlands Ranch, the number one thing statistically and demographically that people are interested in is recreation. That's the number one problem in their life. Yeah, you want to bust out laughing ladder, but you're just afraid to, aren't you? (laughs) And that when folks in our neighborhoods look for things to get involved with, the things that they're looking to get involved with are things that will help them find recreation. Now, this is kind of stunning and stupefying to me, especially since when I went through the interview process, folks basically said that when it's a pretty day, no one's at church because they're all doing, doing good things. Or, you know, when the Broncos are, I would say playing, but I think the truth is winning. 
that folks are there instead. But recreation is the number one thing. How, how is it? What do we have to look like when we are witnessing to a community, to a population, that their number one issue in life is recreation? Now, there's a part of me that doesn't believe that. There's a part of me that wonders if that's entirely true. Well, what are some of the recreation things that you do? I'm always intrigued. I love, I don't go very often, mainly because I haven't had the opportunity. Hopefully the opportunity will present itself more. I love to go to places uh, like professional baseball games or professional football games. I really love professional hockey games. I'll have to admit the reason is because I want to see the fights. And I get, <laughs> get real disappointed if there's no fight. Isn't that just horrible? You, you're just like, what kind of preacher is he? Isn't it amazing, as I look through that crowd and I see everybody cheering for, for the professional team, for the Rockies or the Broncos or the Avs, and I think to myself, this is one thing that in this moment, in this place, brings everybody together, doesn't it? Democrats and Republicans cheering for the Rockies. Muslims and Christians cheering for the Broncos. What is the mob mentality? Is it a mob mentality? And what is it about the mob mentality that speaks to us? Why is it so easy for us to be swept into a way of acting and a way of thinking just because of what everybody else is doing, the impact and influence. Is it because we don't want to be different than the crowd? Is it because truly we see a, a moment or an idea that we uh, might be able to join together and just experience the positivity? I mean, no one worries about who the elected officials are at a Broncos game. It just doesn't happen. We're worrying about the next touchdown or the next pass block. This is what is so intriguing about this day to me. And it's so intriguing because when folks outside of the church ask me about, why are you all celebrating Palm Sunday? And especially when I say that everybody in here waved a palm branch during the opening uh, choir anthem, folks who aren't church folks are going to say, y'all did what? That's nuts. Although they wouldn't think twice about, you know, raising the Broncos or number one uh, big foam hand. They wouldn't think, wouldn't think twice about that. They wouldn't think twice about holding up the political sign at a political rally with their preferred candidate. Wouldn't think twice about that. But for some reason, holding up a palm branch is strange. Now, the church looks at this, the, the Church Universal looks at Palm Sunday from three different perspectives. And over the next couple of years, if you choose not to fire me... Um, We'll look at those perspectives. This year is not the perspective per se of that. But I want you to be thinking about, what is it about that crowd? What was going on in the crowd's mind when this uh, event happened? And what is going on? And why is Jesus doing this? So with that, I want you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Luke chapter 19. That's the uh, third gospel in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 19, if you have to look in the index, don't be, don't be worried about that. And I've chosen some paintings uh, uh, to uh, uh, illuminate our lesson today from a guy named James Tussaud. He's a French uh, realist painter in the 19th century. Uh, I love, he's my favorite painter. And the reason I love him so much, I, I, first of all, I love his painting, I love his use of colors, but what I really love about him is a story. Because he became a millionaire painting parties. Literally a millionaire in the ancient terms of economics. And he painted, you know, card games and barge 
uh, day thing. I mean, just he was just your basic run-of-the-mill painter that painted things that talked about community. You know, fair day in a particular town, you know, when they all would have the fair. Then he got involved with a young woman, didn't get married. His family were faithful Christians, and they had a child together. And soon after they had the child, this woman died. And in that moment, he had a crisis. And from that point on, after a period of depression, from that point on, the only paintings that he ever drew were from Scripture. And folks believed that he had a spiritual awakening. And so when you look at these, I want you to, as I'm reading this, if you're following along, you'll be looking at the text, but if you're not following along, you can look at this, and you can imagine, and look for the, the, the depth of despair that you might see in some of his paintings, but also the depth of joy, the depth of hope in the midst of this. So from Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Let me just pause there. That, that phrase in the original language could actually be translated better, his master has need of it. I love that. You see, the image here is that somebody thinks that their, their, their colt's being stolen, and the disciple says, basically, this colt doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the master. I could preach a sermon just on that verse. Maybe during stewardship time. Let's do it that time. <laughs> and so, verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones, would cry out. May God add his blessing to this, the reading of his holy and perfect word. Amen. Just so you know, that is not a painting by James Tussaud. So the first thing that people always say to me is, is I don't understand why this humble teacher uh, decided to have a parade. The entrance into Jerusalem actually is rooted deeply in the Hebrew Scriptures. Deeply in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read of the kings of Israel, you know who the kings are. It was Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Pretty short country, isn't it? Only three kings. Really a fourth king, but we won't go there because civil war happened after that. And at the time of David, when David took over as king, he entered Jerusalem a very specific way. He entered Jerusalem not on a steed, but on a donkey. 
When David's life was almost over and there was a lot of trouble going on uh, within David's family and he was trying to figure out how am I going to make it uh, clear to the people that the person, the son that I have chosen to be king will be king, which was Solomon. Because some of his other sons throughout uh, these past years had been, had been trying to grapple for power and take over from their father David. But David was very specific. He wanted his son Solomon to be the next king. And so he did not order a decree. He did not order the army to take their positions in the city. He ordered that his son Solomon would ride through Jerusalem on a donkey. At that point, that act becomes institutionalized in the minds of the Hebrew people that we will know who our king is, not by how many people accompany him in the military, not by whether or not he's riding on a white horse, but we will know our king when he's riding on a donkey. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, teaches us that we will know who the Messiah is when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So the first thing, and perhaps the most important thing, particularly in light of all that we have read in the Gospels, is that this is the moment that Jesus is finally declaring himself to be the Messiah. He is fulfilling the prophecies in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which is a book in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when we look at the Gospels holistically, from from a whole perspective, what we see is each time somebody recognizes Jesus to be the Messiah, what does Jesus say? Shh, don't tell anyone. When Jesus heals somebody, he says, don't tell the crowds, go to the priests, show yourself. That way you can be admitted back into the community now that you've been healed of leprosy, but don't tell anybody. Time and time again, when Jesus does great miracles, he instructs those to whom he has given the gift of healing or redemption or liberation from demonic powers. Over and over, he says, don't tell anyone. And they said, but you're the Messiah. We can tell that you're you're the son of David. Jesus says, shh, until this moment. And this moment is a clear declaration by Jesus that now he is accepting the mantle of Messiah. Not only that, but in a few days when he's he's arrested and brought before the Roman officials and brought before the Jewish officials of the temple, they'll ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus will declare, you say that I am. Now, I was expecting all of you to cheer like Denver just scored a a touchdown when I said that. Because what Jesus is saying there, he is claiming the name of God as his own. I am. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So just in the course of a few days, not only has Jesus said, I am the promised Messiah through this act of riding into Jerusalem, but in a couple of days, he's going to declare, I am God. And that is what is unique, one of the major unique things about what it means to be Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ, not just some good teacher, but the one who is God incarnate. 
He is the Son of God and God the Son. That's why he's so important to us. Jesus is different than any other religious leader that has ever lived, and no religious leader that will ever live after this will be able to claim the uniqueness that Jesus claims. Jesus is not just one way to the Father. He is the way to the Father because he is God the Son. God chose in his infinite wisdom and in his sovereignty to clothe himself with flesh and become the one whom we proclaim to be the Messiah, Jesus himself. And this is where it gets kind of interesting for me because as the crowd lines the street, the people welcome Jesus as the Messiah. Now, different, they said lots of things according to all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we look at this same event next year from the perspective of a different Gospel, and then the following year from another Gospel, we'll see the fullness of what the crowd is chanting, which means you've got to come for the next couple of years to get the fullness of this event. But today, what they're chanting is they are chanting Uh, the psalm and the words of the prophet that accompany the Messiah, specifically the Messiah. Now, some of the other Gospels will bring in a perspective of the king. Others of the uh, Gospels will bring in a perspective of a a political leader or or a great uh, redeemer. But specifically in Luke, he's saying the Messiah has come, the one whom has been promised, the one who is to bring God's final promise of redemption. Now, they may not have known that in the fullness. They may have had different perspectives of this. I think that's true, particularly because of the perspectives of the, uh, of the other uh, Gospels that, that speak of this. And even though we won't answer that today, we won't answer it next year, well, we may answer it the following year, the question's still good for us today to think about for the next couple of years. Somebody said, he's given us a couple years of homework? (laughs) And that is this. What does it mean to say Jesus is the Messiah? What does it mean? And we see in the voices of the crowds that it means different things, looking at all of the Gospels. Just like I wonder if it means different things when we waved our palm branches today. When we say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, when we share the name of Christ with our family, our neighbors, and our co-workers, and as we're sitting here, good Christian church folks, which all of you are, including these people back behind me, I couldn't let the sermon go through without talking to the choir. (laughs) It is clear that the religious leaders don't like what they're hearing. The religious leaders in this event are having their perspectives challenged. The religious leader's perspective is challenged in this event. I think sometimes in the church we get used to a way of doing things. I mean, for the last 15 years, my wife and I have said, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
We've been here, this is our ninth Sunday, and we still messed up today. <laughs> we'll get sins eventually. We'll, we'll get sin eventually. Now, y'all don't take that the way it sounded. But it's true that we Christians, we get into a way of thinking about things, we get, a, we get into a way of doing things, we get into a way of thinking about things, and you know, it is really hard to have those perspectives challenged. And, and here's the interesting thing about the religious leaders that are challenging Jesus in this moment. When they tell Jesus, tell your people to be silent. Are you ready? <clears throat> they have spent their entire careers, their entire ministries leading the services of the Jewish people, and preaching messages that talked about the coming of the Messiah. I mean, they've been under Roman oppression, and they have encouraged, the good ones at least, they have encouraged their people, the Messiah is coming. Redemption is coming. Freedom is coming. And then when it does come, they tell Jesus, tell everybody to stop saying that. doesn't it happen with us? We say to people, you, you know, if you would pray, if let me pray with you, and I know that God can heal you, and then when that person gets healed and starts shouting like a good Pentecostal, you say, shush, don't get all over, overwrought about it. Isn't it a part of the human condition that we hope for something, but when that something comes, it is so difficult for us to perceive it? And it's easy for us to stand in judgment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests as they tell Jesus, tell your people to stop saying this. And it's easy to be upset with them, to be angry with them, but is it easy to feel sorry for them? Because here's the truth. When you encounter Jesus, your life will be radically different. And if your life is not radically different, especially that from your neighbor who's not a believer, you need to worry about that. I'm not telling you that you're in bad stead with the Lord, but if there's no discernible difference between you and your non-believing co-worker, that's a sign for you. See, I smiled, which means I'm getting ready to say hard things. <laughs> that's a sign for you. If there's not a boldness in your life, if you can talk about your grandchildren more than you can talk about Jesus, if you can engage in a conversation more about the Denver Broncos than you can about Jesus, if you know more stats about the Colorado Rockies than you know about the miracles of Jesus, then I would lovingly and graciously and pastorally challenge you, is Jesus really anything important in your life? Do you hunger to get up and read God's Word? Do you get excited when you can open your Scriptures knowing that in some places of the world this is illegal? You and I have the opportunity to engage with people on the street about the message of God's love through Christ. And we'd much rather talk about the issues of the day, the political parties of the day. Some of my more progressive colleagues in ministry say, how come you're not talking about political issues more? The answer, because I got too much to say about Jesus. 
I got too much to say about the guy who came to set us free, to redeem us and give us hope in a new life and prepare the way for eternal life. I got only so much time, and I'm not going to waste it on things that only matter for a day, for a season, or for a cycle in the media. Jesus' answer, I'm a little nervous. Choir, do you have some stones? Some of you do. Some of you said you were going to throw them at the preacher. I got some stones here. Because Jesus says something really interesting. Jesus says, if I tell these folks to be quiet, if I tell this crowd to stop talking, the stones will cry out. That's the power of this day. That is the revelation of this day, that Palm Sunday is so significant that non-living stones will anthropomorphize and begin to shout and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I've given you these stones, and I want you to do something. This is Holy Week, so this, this is your I don't know, your penance? I don't know. You can go tell people, my preacher said I got to carry around these stones for the week. You put them in your pocket. I want you to put them in your pocket or in your purse or wherever you go to regularly. And throughout, not as a, not as a punishment for the weight of your sins, but as a partner in the proclamation of the gospel. Because here's what I'd like for you to do. Throughout this week, would you be attentive to the Spirit when the Spirit invites you to share your faith story with somebody else? And what will happen in that moment is you're going to be confronted with a decision. I don't know if I want to lay that down. I don't, want, I don't know if I want to risk this friendship. I don't know if I want to risk being called to my boss because this is the workplace. I don't know if, 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 if I have the courage to go and knock on my neighbor's door. I don't know if I really want to invite my neighbor over for coffee. You're going to have those thoughts. I have, I have them too. When Pastor Joe's been teaching on Wednesday night about how to be a, a, a people of hospitality, and the first week his, his assignment was to get to know our neighbors. And it, it's uncomfortable I mean, we're the new neighbors. They should be coming and welcoming us, right? Well, at least that's what I told myself so that I didn't have to feel guilty. But Pastor Joe said to me, no, you got to go introduce yourself to your neighbors. And, and I remember having the same feelings that you're having. I don't know those people. I'm their new neighbor. The last thing that they need to be saying to the other neighbors is, be careful with the new family. They're weird. <laughs> I have them too. I have those fears too. But do this. I'm almost done. When that happens, I want you to listen. Just real quietly listen. Lean your head down if you have to. And see if those rocks in your pocket are crying out. And if those rocks in your pocket are still silent, may I suggest to you that's because Jesus knows you have the courage. And you will 
share your faith with someone. You will invite your friend to Easter Sunday. Do this if you have to. Take those rocks and put them in your hand. Put them in your left hand. If you're right-handed, shake right hand. And you walk over to your neighbor's door and you knock on the door. And these rocks will remind you. There's nothing powerful in the rocks, but they'll remind you. Just keep them as a backup. Because when your neighbor opens the door and you're stunned into silence, (laughs) maybe the rocks will invite your neighbor to church. You'll have none of that, will you? What is Jesus Christ inviting you to lay down that you might be made whole? May there be a day when I won't need these rocks, that the boldness will be in me. When creation itself will recognize who Jesus is, and I'll recognize that I'm a part of creation. Because if I'm silent, even the stones will cry out. O oh God, give to us the boldness to proclaim the gospel. There's not a single one of us in this room, if we saw our friends standing on a train track with an oncoming train, wouldn't interject ourselves to save their life. And yet too often, we stand off to the side, silent, watching train wrecks happen in the lives of our family, our co-workers, and our friends. Lord, give us the boldness to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that the voices of that crowd that welcomed the Messiah only a few days later shouted again, crucify him, crucify him. What would have happened if their voices would have never fallen silent and they would have continued to praise the arrival of the Messiah? Perhaps then doubt and fear would have never set in. Preserve us, O God, especially in this week, from not only denying Christ through our silence, but even becoming an enemy of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.